Welcome to All Power to the Developing, a podcast of the Eastside Institute. I'm Lois Holzman, co-founder and director of the Institute, and I want to tell you where our title comes from. The Institute is a center for social change efforts that reinitiate human and community development. We support, connect, and partner with committed and creative activists, scholars, artists, helpers, and healers all over the world. Way back in 2003, Institute co-founder, the late Fred Newman and I, had a paper published with the title, All Power to the Developing. This phrase captures how vital it is for all people to grow, develop, and transform emotionally, socially, and intellectually, if we are to have a shot at creating something positive out of the intense crises we're all experiencing. Our hope is that this podcast series will show you that far from a slogan, all power to the developing is a loving activity, a pulsing heart in an all too cruel world. Everybody, I am Jan Wooten, faculty at the Eastside Institute, and your host for this episode of All Power to the Developing. I am so happy to be talking today to two very special developmentalists, Dr. Carrie Loebman and Dr. Tony Perone, and we'll hear a little bit about their work to impact the culture of higher education, bringing play and performance into the classroom. Let me tell you a little bit about Tony and Carrie. Tony is on the Faculty of Psychology and Human Development at the University of Washington at Tacoma, where he teaches courses on play across the lifespan. He's a yogi, humanitarian clown, performance activist, Chicago clubs band, avocado epicure, and co-editor with Carrie on a collection of writings by ESI founder Lois Holzman titled Big Act ideas, and revolutionary activity. His scholarly writings include creative play as a practice of freedom and play games and philosophy, a collaboration with his mentor, Artin Gansu. Tony's active with the Association for the Study of Play, AKA TASP, and the AERA's Cultural Historical Research Group. He studied acting and improv with the famed Second City Troupe in Chicago. This is where sketch writers for Saturday Night Live learn their craft. And he brings that performatory spirit into playful, artful workshops that he organizes off campus in Tacoma with fellow teaching colleagues, students, and people of all ages in the Tacoma community. Welcome, Tony. And Dr. Carrie Lobman is uh, a wonderful colleague an expert in teaching adults how to teach little children. She began her career in the kindergarten classroom before going into higher education. She currently wears two very big hats. She's department chair and associate professor at the Rutgers Graduate School of Education, where she performs as a teacher, trainer, researcher, and mentor to now hundreds of newly minted educators. And with her other, outside the academy hat. She's the Institute's leader of education and research. Now, Carrie is in constant motion, consulting with 
befriending, mentoring, coaching, a growing international network of performance activists, alumni of the Institute's international class, and it's performing the World Conference and community of which she and Tony are both lead and key figures. She's active with the National Association for the Education of Young Children, uh, for teacher education in the AERA and TASP, co-author of two other books, Unscripted Learning, Using Improv in the K-8 Curriculum, and a book on play and performance. Her numerous, numerous research articles include Democracy and Development, um, the role of outside of school experiences in preparing young, young kids to be active citizens, and uh, I feel very nervous, addressing text anxiety in inner city schools through play and performance, something that I would like to be reading myself right now. So Carrie, Tony, without further ado, welcome to our Impresarios of Play. Thank you, and, Dan. And Thanks, so Dan. great to have you here. Well, we are thrilled to be here with so you. Good. Great so to be with you. We've, we've got a few minutes to, there's so much we could go over, but I really want to get into the heart of what you're doing inside academia, inside the higher ed world, and what you see about what's going on, what's changing, what's growing there. You've known each other, you told me, for something like 16 years. You work very closely together. You've become quite skilled partners in disrupting traditional education. And I'm using disruption in the best sense of the word. You're appealing to faculty and students who uh, want to do something called um, challenging the cognitive bias in higher ed. So talk to us about that. What is the cognitive bias? Why is that your mission? And how are you going about it? I'll, I'll, I'll start if you if you don't mind, Tony. We, we often finish each other's sentences, so we'll see how that goes. <laughs> how that goes. Um, <laughs> big question, Jen. Um, I think I think for me, and and as you said, I started my career um, working with very young children in preschool and kindergarten, and I actually think that's not a bad place to start if you want to understand what we mean by challenging the cognitive bias. So if we think about how we all learned and developed when we were babies and very young children, there was no separation between many of the things that we go on to separate, right? There was no separation between learning and play, for example. It's not like you, your parents sat you down when you were six months old and said, now we're gonna learn to talk. Um, there was a constant playing with language going on around you. And you participated at it in that from right from the start. So your parents said, blah, blah, blah. No, you said, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Maybe your parents said that. Um, and, and they said, oh, yeah, I'm hungry too. Let's have some food. Right. So there was a constant playing with language, and it, it didn't require you to know anything beforehand. You didn't have to even know you were hungry, frankly. Um, you participated in that, and we continue to do that when we're two, three, long after we acquire language, we continue to not separate playing and learning. And in doing that, we, so for example, we play that we can drive a train when we can't. We play that we are mothers and fathers long before we are that. But we even do things when we're not playing that are, that are like that, right? We, 
we are invited to pretend we know how to sit at a dinner table before we really know how to do that. Um, we pretend that we know how to, what it means to be a member of a family. Um, so there's no having to know beforehand. So to me, when we talk about the cognitive bias, which creeps in as we um, enter kindergarten and first grade and second grade, and then really takes hold in the upper elementary and high school years, the assumption is that your job is to learn and know things before you can do them. Um, and so I think when we talk about disrupting, and that doesn't just have an impact on learning content, it has an impact on what we even think learning is. So that by the time we get to universities, for the most part, we think learning is demonstrating what we know, right? And, and, and that is not, that is for many reasons, including the failure of our education system, which has put assessment front and center. But for the most part, we, we, we relate to learning as showing that we know something. And that prevents us from continuing to grow and develop as learners. And just to build on that with a, with a lifespan lens, because I really appreciate all of what Carrie just offered, but I'll for a moment just focus on the, the language part. I like that babbling reminder. But before I entered higher education in the way I perform with it now, I was working with adults learning English as a new language. And so from that lifespan lens, some of those same reminders emerged that Carrie just brought up. That is that learning how to communicate and now in my previous but still continuing experiences as an educator with and of language is that we often think that we have to know what we want to talk about or we have to know how to say something and I'm maybe air quotes correctly. And so much of what inspired me to see the power and possibilities of both disrupting the cognitive bias but doing so with play and performance was to remind us that language is not about getting it right or making sure that your syntax is correct. It's about communicating, it's about relating, it's about being intimate with each other. But again, how we've taken that message out of learning as Carrie so beautifully reminded us, especially as we head into formal schooling, that we've had burdens of that for decades by the time Carrie and I now meet adults or when I first met adults teaching English more than 25 years ago. So disrupting that cognitive bias also is a beautiful call to the reminder of how holistic, relational, and integrated both we are and how we are with each other, and how play is a gorgeous catalyst for doing so. Oh, wow. Lots of grist for the mill here. So I am thinking, here you are, Carrie Loebman, at Rutgers University Graduate School of Education. There you are, Tony, out at the University of Washington in, in Tacoma, and your colleagues and your dozens of students are walking into the classroom ready to know. They've signed up for a course with Carrie called Play Across the, uh, I'm sorry, for Tony's Play Across the Lifespan, and Carrie, your course on Teacher as Performer. So how do you grapple with this, I'm guessing, pressure to, these are students who are ready to know. They're ready to know how to teach little kids how to know. So how does, how's that going? 
Oh, I was I was I was thinking you wanted to jump in, Tony, but I'm happy to. I was kind of just holding space for a moment, but I mean, I'm happy to to jump in. I I, I think uh, there's something I, th I like. It's a very provocative question, Jen. So I, mm -hmm. I held space for just a moment because uh, I think there's definitely a lot that people walk in with mm -hmm. that isn't only challenged by a course titled the teacher as performer or lifespan imaginative play. It doesn't mean that those aren't provocative titles. I so far haven't seen courses with those titles a lot in higher ed. So it's not like the same thing as intro to psychology or curriculum and assessment kind of titles. Uh, but I think so much of what is invited to be disrupted, perhaps in both these two classes that you mentioned and others that we offer and that others are offering around the world is a reminder about letting go of these expectations of what posturing one needs to have in a college classroom. Certainly, we all come with that reminder of, oh, wow, I'm now in college, or oh, wow, I'm preparing for my dream career as an educator or a therapist or a community organizer. And so much about that gets attached to what higher ed promises we can do. You'll have certain skill sets. You'll have certain knowledge bases. And to an extent, I don't disagree. We do need to, to an extent, learn the knowing how to do things. But that dominance of learning how and learning that is what I'd like to offer is the most disruptive about entering any class of mine, at least. And I feel since I've been connected to my dear comrade, Carrie, for so many years, that's a, at least a similar stance for her and her learning environments. So that offer of not merely aligning with the, I'm here to learn how, and again, that's a cognitive how, how to write an essay, how to argue something, how to teach something, as well as learning that. Those two learnings dominate and frankly are taxing us in my opinion, overly taxing us. And there's another part of this learning part that I'd like to remind us of that I think is very vital to when someone co-creates with me in a classroom is that we are learning that we are learners. We are learning that it is something that human beings do. And here's the kicker, we do it together. That's another, with love, offer that I'd like to unburden us of is that this is a solo individual journey. That's another one that we posture in because those gorgeous babblings that Carrie and I mentioned either as babies learning language or adults coming to learn another language reminds us of our relationality and sociality. But higher education, for example, individualizes us with our GPAs, with our degrees, with our majors, and in many ways reminds us more so that we're here to get ours rather than we're here to create something together. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think that's that's a really helpful um, kind of understanding of kind of what, what in some ways we're up against in the way that you described, Jan. Um, I think both Tony and I very much work to, to make it an invitation to students. Um, so, you know, one of the things I often start my classes with is by saying, um, if you think back to, or for me, when I think back to working with four-year-olds, the biggest thing they were often afraid of was what I was gonna stop them from doing. Mm -hmm. They came in and their, their, their eagerness was to do everything. 
and anything. And with college students, it's often the opposite experience. They've come in and their biggest fear is what are you going to make them do? Um, and so I tell them that. And I say, one of the things we're gonna work on this semester, because if we talk a lot about why are young children such good learners? And one of the things is because they, they don't separate it from everything else. They are constantly creating their learning alongside what they're learning. They're involved all the time. And so one of the things we talk about is how can we as a group discover how to help people, how to help you go to from what are you gonna make me to, to what can I do? How can we create this together? How are we going to do this together? Um, and I think, you know, we, we talk a lot about how schooling is too um, demanding of children sometimes, but actually the thing that school doesn't ask children to do is co-create the environment with them, right? So the, the reason school is so demanding in some ways is because it's based on what, what children have to do. It doesn't actually demand that they participate with you in creating that. And so I think what both Tony and I have done over the years is found small ways to switch that so that the college students, the university students are asked and invited and requested to be co-creators with us of the environments where they can learn and develop. And yeah, I think they have a lot of reactions to that. But one of the reactions they have is, I didn't know that this was something one was allowed to do. Um, I thought my job was to do the assignments as written and get a good grade. I didn't know that I could co-create with you. One of those small shifts, but in many ways is also a humongous, gargantuan shift, is this attention to the words we're using. And again, in that theme that's been co-creating in this discussion so far about language, is that, I mean, I, I honor and celebrate the words that Carrie just brought up, which were things like invite, and co-create, and I'll add a few more. Like I use a lot of words like let's go on a journey together or let's go on a discovery path together. And those shift from a more negotiated, outcome-based, expecting kind of frame and to say, we're gonna do this, we're gonna do this together. There might be something that's gonna be new and or uncomfortable or novel for all of us, but it really shifts from there's content that really is supposed to bring us together. And maybe Carrie and I with our positions as instructors have that content and we are delivering that content. That's another burden. And the shift that I felt in Carrie's offer and the ones that I'm bringing back in an improvisational yes and sense is that what if we shift the way we create by using ideas that are called, that we are co-creating, that we are on a journey, that we are not negotiating or working with or against each other, but we are co-creating together. I think that is a, a powerful shift that although is right now I'm focusing on it as an example of word choice, it actually is an inspiring invitation for students. To hear, oh, you mean it's not just about attendance, it's about co-creating. It's not just about outcome, it's about process. It's not just about knowing the, in the cognitive sense, it's about connecting and creating. That means then that we can start wondering, well, how does that also posture in our bodies? 
How does that posture and how we teach or advocate in the world? So it doesn't just live as mere language choices or semantic differences. It actually builds new posturing for us to not only be in those classroom environments, but to see if and how we might yes and that offer in our classrooms, at our homes, in our community building. One of the things that always inspires me, not most, but I'm particularly touched by, is when students remind me, and I'm not necessarily right now preparing teachers per se, but when students say, you know, what we're doing in this class is helping me be a better parent, mm -hmm. or giving me new ways about how to relate to my coworkers, even if the course is about child development. I think it's that reminder how we section out and see this is learning of this kind. This is only applied in this context. This is only for a cognitive benefit. And those stratifications and divisions are actually quite harmful to us. And this playful performatory lens is a gorgeous invitation and a disruption to reintegrate and reconnect. So for those of us who have been following this uh, the, the, the story that you're presenting about what you throw at students when they walk into your classroom. Hey, guess what? We're going to do something different in here today is part of what you're introducing in this new, better way of learning, this developmental learning, this however we want to describe it, is um, a new understanding, perhaps, of play and performance. I mean, after all, these are adult students. How, how do you think about that? It's interesting, Jan. I was, I was, when Tony was talking, I was thinking about this example from my class. So let me, let me give it and see if it answers your question. I think it, okay. I think it might, because yes, I think, I think most adults, even if they enjoy play, they see it as a recreational activity and, and they, as the opposite of work. Mm -hmm. um, and and so when you introduce it into an activity that they have paid for to get take a college class, get credit for, learn some content, they can they can often they can sometimes have the experience that you're infantilizing or you're not serious or you're um, I, I you know, I used to take that on. I talk about that in the beginning, but I actually think, if you will, the proof is in the pudding. <laughs> and in fact, several weeks into the class, they're so engaged in rigorous dialogue and conversation that they begin to shift their understanding of play and performance. So, so one of the activities we do in my class is um, about halfway through the semester where we've done a lot of looking at the theories of what performance is. We've talked a lot about what teaching and learning are. They've studied um, other educators who use play and performance. And then their final sort of long-term assignment is they break up into groups of four or five and they collectively choose something the group wants to learn okay so it could be they want to learn um, a foreign language it could be they want to learn one group decided they wanted to learn how to be drag queens i accept all offers um, their task over four or five weeks is to collectively figure out what is the performance that is needed for the group to learn what it wants to learn. And they have to grapple with that every week. What is the, who, do we have somebody who knows how to perform as an expert in this? Do we have somebody who's really good at asking questions? If you're gonna perform as a drag queen, do you have to get 
you have to um, learn how to dress in a certain way, or can you read a book about it? They have to kind of really grapple with what is the performance of learning. And as Tony said, we use that language on purpose because performing being a learner in our society shifts your gaze to the creation of that activity away from being a learner, which most of us think we know what that is. And it generally involves consuming knowledge or information. And so I, I think it, for me, it's a concrete example of how not only do I use play and performance, I engage people in a reorganization of their understanding of human beings as people who can perform and can play, meaning can actively create new things together, new ways of being together. Um, so, so I think for my students, the reason I do it at the end is I actually think at the beginning, they wouldn't be able to take that leap because they, they do need some validation that this is a legitimate thing to do. They do need to read some articles that say from by Ken Gergen that talk about performative psychology. They need to read Lois Holtzman talking about Vygotsky and being and becoming because in fact, the performance of being a college student involves engaging with intellectual material and then it arms them to take that with them into this more um, practical is the wrong word, but more activistic activity. And Carrie, I love that reminder about bringing in other conversation partners like Gergen or Holtzman. And I'll add to that by wondering that it also is important. I, and I, I appreciate your reminder that that might be a bit of a, a sudden offer in say week one to be like, okay, let's start learning about drag queens, or, which would be great, or other topics. But it's also a reminder about how so much about what I'd like to suggest that I'm offering in my learning environments in higher education is that it's also about building the group. And that also, in addition to new words mm -hmm. that we might be using like offer or invitation or journey, it's also about learning that this is a process that we will build together. And I think about, uh, I can't, I speak to my own experiences as a person who learned how to improvise is that so much about that people think, oh, you know, improvising is just a bunch of people who get on stage and make stuff up. That's either because they're witty or they're intuitive or they're lucky in some other way. But improvisers spend a lot of gorgeous time building their group, building their ensemble, learning with and from each other, their offers. They get, I mean, I remember fondly, you know, just learning through a lot of just social time. That doesn't dismiss the fact that we were learning certain tools to be good improvisers, but it was inseparable from being good improvisers by also being good human beings who learn with and from and connect with each other. So, so much of what I also feel honors what Carrie offers and what I'd like to think happens in the classes that I'm co-creating here at UW-Tacoma is that there is about building a group. Again, just as a reminder, I, I love when I hear things like, I see all of you in other class, like these are students who say, I see you in all my other classes. We've taken a host of psychology classes before, or I've seen you on campus in some way, but now I'm really getting to know you. That speaks again to that initial offer you asked of us, Jan, was disrupting. That's often not what people maybe initially mm -hmm. think brings them to college. Maybe historically we thought about people getting to know each other when they joined a work or schooling experience as a socializing activity. But this is another kind of socializing activity. This is a radically humanizing activity. Mm -hmm. 
And part of that radical humanizing also comes when Carrie says, what do we want to learn about and how do we want to go about it? Or what journeys might we want to go on together? That's radically humanizing. It's still intellectual, but it's also yeah. more than just intellectual now. So interesting. And, you know, I think we'll take a very quick break and come right back. The Eastside Institute is a hub for a diverse and emergent community of social activists, thought leaders, and practitioners who are reigniting our human abilities to imagine, create, and perform beyond ourselves, to develop. Each episode will introduce you to another performance activist or play revolutionary from around the world. The Institute is independent of government and corporate foundations. Our work is entirely funded by students and supporters. If you would like to help the Institute expand its developmental work, please make a contribution by going to eastsideinstitute.org and click the Get Involved tab, where you can make a donation. Thanks. And now, back to our conversation. So welcome back. We're talking to Dr. Carrie Loebman and Dr. Tony Perrone about play and performance and development in higher education. And so interesting to hear what you're up to and a growing play movement afoot in higher ed. Um, Tony and Carrie, uh, you just uh, Carrie, you have a, a, a play performance and social justice series, and I saw both of you as part of a conversation around play in higher ed, and you talk about play as an equalizer. Mm. You talk about it as, as, as liberatory, as, as essential to equality and social justice. How is that? How is that so? Tell us how you think about that. Well, I think what's interesting about that question is I think the people who have told us that are our students in different ways. So it's, it's been something I've learned um, over the last year, certainly, um, as we've been going through the pandemic together and been on Zoom, but also going through the Black Lives Matter movement internationally. I've had to really think about and look at are these pedagogies I'm using, are they also supporting the kind of inclusive environments, environments that are anti-racist and challenge kind of the, 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 the traditional ways in which some people are valued more than others. And I think what people have been saying is that if you think about, and now I'm saying, if you think about play, again, even traditional understandings of play from, when, from our childhoods, um, one of the things about it is in play, people use whatever it is that they bring mm -hmm. to the table and they create with it. Um, it doesn't mean it's nice. It doesn't mean people aren't mean to each other. It doesn't, but it literally is built with what it is that people bring. And so then if you take that, if you take that image of when you just kind of had a bunch of things and with your brothers and sisters and you created stuff and you bring that forward, to, a, to an environment in which it's adults who have more of a wherewithal to be conscious about that, right? To be, to be aware of the ways some people might be excluded and some people not. Mm -hmm. it, actually bringing those things together, that adult ability to be conscious of what do we wanna do together? How do we wanna do it? Something that most two-year-olds frankly don't ask on a regular basis, together with the 
create with what you've got that we all had when we were two, you create a much more inclusive environment because it's, you know, what, what you've got is a space in which people can listen for offers to use the improv term, um, picking up off of what Tony said earlier. You're listening for what can be of use to the group, what can be built with, or you're listening for what do we never pick up on? You know, when this person talks, it seems to never get picked up on. But in an environment where you're playing and performing together, rather than being just a moral issue, it's a performance issue. Let's, let's use those offers. Let's build that muscle. Um, so I think that's one of the ways I think that people have been saying to me, this creates a more inclusive space. Um, it also, frankly, it doesn't require students to leave anything at the door. Um, and a lot of classrooms require people to leave their emotionality at the door, leave their sadness at the door, um, leave, leave their joy at the door. Joy, that's way too, you know, um, big. Um, and I think when you are creating environments where people are asked to co-create and play and perform together, those things become material um, for the creating rather than diversions from the learning. I fully agree with that. So maybe just in the interest of time, I won't say, yeah, all those same things, but yes, all those same things about how, again, in that theme that we're co-creating today about disrupting, we're also disrupting that only the cognitive should be brought in or only the serious should be included or only talking about issues of importance is going to address issues of importance. So that's one thing I also want to mention is two things, but the one thing I want to mention is that also people that I'm also hearing from, students, colleagues alike, are seeing how this, at least on the surface, seemed like a frivolous thing. I mean, how many times have people thought of play as just another diversion word? It's like a, even a naughty word in ways within serious environments like higher ed. But people are also seeing, oh, there's a lot of possibility for how a playful and performatory and environment that is co-created by, with, and for the group is an opportunity for creating new possibilities to address the very inequities or challenges that we are currently facing. It's not just what people might think of when they hear it, like, oh, it's just a way to undo the stress of the world, mm. or it's just a way to divert our attention away from Black Lives Matter. It is actually a possible catalyst for healing addressing these very things that are important to people in many ways and in many environments. The other thing I'd like to add is that another way that it feels inclusive to me that also has just been emergent and co-created, at least in my own environments, is that this type of environment inspires others to bring more people into our physical learning environments. And by that, I mean often in the classes, whether it be my play class or human development class in some other time topic, People are like, oh, I'm, you know, what we're doing is really interesting. And I was talking to, say, my girlfriend or my mom or my child, and they got excited about hearing it. And my usual response is, great, feel free to bring them next time. And that has been an invitation that has happened in, across classes of mine. So in a more actual who's in the room learning, another thing that higher education often has is a certain privilege of who can be in those spaces, adults people who pay, people who are interested in that posturing, for example. 
But another way that I also see that we can and should be as inclusive as we can is to, in that social therapeutic sense, bringing as diverse a group into this play space and co-creating it with them. So with love, I say, great. I love having that there are six-year-olds also in this class and a grandma and others who may not be officially registered, but we are also being inclusive and creating with them. And that's also been something that's been a quite gorgeous experience amid this pandemic, is that mm -hmm. because we are sheltering, there's a bit more possibility for that. Whereas maybe when we were physically on campus, it might've been a conflict of, well, someone has a work conflict or it's a time conflict. Well, now because we're living both synchronously and asynchronously with our classes, there's lots of ways to even build the group. Back to that point we were making about so much of this is about building groups. The inclusivity now is not only about not taking out the joy and the struggle and the wonder and the holistic development, it's also about bringing more people on board with us and inviting them to be part of the journey with us. And that's actually been quite joyful. Yeah. Through everything I hear you both saying, I hear play space as grow space, <laughs> as profoundly relational, as profoundly collaborative, it, it does seem that this is a method particularly suited for this time. Is, is that your experience? And is that the feedback that you've been getting? Well, I think, yes. I think the quick answer is yes, in two, in two different ways, I think. Mm -hmm. So at least two. Um, one is that I think people are more open. I actually experience, even though people are frightened and they're going through something and they're going through something unequally. So for example, in my class this year, one of the things you discover when you do a class on Zoom is the inequities of people's living situations, right? It used to be everybody walked into the classroom and you didn't know where they were coming from. You turn on Zoom and some people are in a tiny little room with their brothers and sisters and other people are sitting in a gorgeously manicured lawn in their backyard. So um, in that way, it's like people's whole lives, as Tony said, are more there and to be mm -hmm. built with. But my experience is people have been open. If you create the space for them and you, and you build with what they're bringing with you, they're more open. But I think another way is that I think people are recognizing the limits to what has been built so far in terms of educational environments, but also in terms of movements for social justice. So I think both of those things, people are aware of the limitations of old practices and are looking for new, new ways. So at least at the Eastside Institute, um, my experience is that we've grown astronomically and it's not because we've suddenly become brilliant. It's because people are saying, I, I want, to create with others. I want to be joyful. I want to have a space where I can um, not have to leave anything at the door or create with what I've got. So yeah, I think there's a big shift and a big desire in this moment. Um, I don't think that means, I think, I think this is going to be a long haul um, battle is the wrong word because of all the joy, but joyful battle. Um, I think as the pandemic hopefully begins to wind down, um, we're going to have to make bigger offers because mm -hmm. there is going to be a pull to go back to normal. Yeah. 
And in my opinion, normal hasn't served us very well. And weird is what's on the table. And I think during the pandemic, we're, everything was weird. So, so I'm really, I'm, I'm gearing up for a long-term play battle um, in which we invite people to reconsider how we want to go forward together and to literally ask that question. That's really gorgeous, Carrie, because I've been feeling that a lot about that, you know, call for a return to normal and how all that we've been made present with about inequities and limitations of our previous tools and how play and performance can be possibilities to create in a tool and result way new tools as well as new meanings of what we are creating and how we move forward. I'm particularly inspired, Gary, I just want to offer a little love about your offer to make something that's a really big offer moving forward. Mm -hmm. and how that also, and I'll, I'll yes and that by saying also yes and that with other colleagues of ours who may not sit, position themselves in the positions that Gary and I are in, which is teaching teachers, being in education, being in human development, being play activists. Because another big offer is to perhaps invite others across disciplines, across age groups, across other higher ed contexts to be open to making such revolutionary offers, both while the pandemic continues and afterwards, and especially afterwards. Because I think that will also offer us a collective shift away from any maybe just urge to return back to normal because there is that desire to say, oh, I miss fill in the blank. I miss those social gatherings. I miss that other activity. And to an extent that is vital and valuable to honor, but at the same time, those also were entrenched in the inequities of the world. Yeah. So we have to also wonder about a total holistic offer, that big offer that Carrie is inviting us to be taking on. So I'm particularly excited about that, but in a cool way, I don't know yet what that will be like. No. And it I think like the wonderful thing I think, sorry, Jen, wonderful <laughs> thing I think about the improvisational nature of not just Tony's in my work, but many, many colleagues like us. And it so is that we don't have to leave anything behind. We can take anything we want with us. This is a yes, giant yes and. So I, I think that's really important when you talk about higher education the knowledge that humanity has created doesn't have to get rejected to, to make a break with the cognitive bias. It, it, it couldn't be. Um, it's, it's a building with all of that. And so mm -hmm. I, think it's, I think there's something, we are such a, a um, we, have, we have reached a point in our history where we tend to dichotomize everything. And I think play doesn't, doesn't need to do that. We can play with old ways of doing things and new ways of doing things living side by side in fact we have to mm -hmm. yeah yeah just just from that cultural historical sense i mean everything is a remix and i know that's maybe not exactly a cultural historical phrase but it's that reminder that we're continuously in history creating both with what is and what is becoming without stratifying or dichotomizing that uh, but I'm, again, particularly reminded and inspired by this, I think we might want to see how that will take us in new directions with some more provocative offers, bigger offers, more inclusive offers, more participants in our ensemble. And it's exciting to, to really witness and, and be see as possibilities. It's, it's, it is so wonderful to talk to both of you. It does seem like higher ed is getting weirder and... <laughs> 
<laughs> and as oh, yeah. we, as we um, it uh, keep expanding the movement for performance activism, social justice movements may be getting weirder too. Um, but it's it's it is so heartening to talk to the two of you developmentalists in higher ed. And thank you so much for being part of All Power to the Developing today. Thanks, Thank you, Jan. Thanks, Tony. Thanks, Jan. Thanks, Carrie.